0: Good morning. We're going to start by reading from Matthew chapter five, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's Matthew five thirteen through sixteen. So, if you want to pull out your phone or um, however you want to read along, this is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank You for sending Jesus into the world. It's through Jesus that we come to know You. The evidence of Your hand is all over this creation, and every morning that we breathe in our first breath, we know that You have provided for us. Yet it's through Jesus that we see more of Your personal side. It's through Jesus that we have learned words of instruction words of grace, words of gospel that bring us good news. Good news of your great love, good news of how it is that we can be made right with you, good news that offers us hope that you are a God who is still at work in transforming people. Thank you for your long, slow patience in the way that you work with each one of us. You receive us as we are, And you begin to fill us with your grace. And little by little, you build the same character that we see in Jesus into us. And we know, Lord, that sometimes we resist you, we fight you, we get lazy, we get sloppy, we forget, we get selfish. And yet, over time, the longer we walk with you, we see your work in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own souls. Thank you for your incredible, life-shaping love that not only allows us to know that we are loved, but gives us the capacity to love others in all kinds of impossible situations and to work at acts of caring and kindness and graciousness because Jesus has done this for us and commissioned us to be this kind of force in the world. Lord, we stop for a moment and we think of those that we know that are struggling who are sick right now, and we lift their names to you here in the silence of this gathering. Together we pray for our nation. We know that in the next three weeks of time, we're going to be inundated with political messages pulling us this way or that way. And our nation will vote, and there will be a result. Whoever wins, we pray that you will begin to call upon and work in the hearts and minds of the president and the vice president and all the leaders of this country. We pray for wisdom for each of them right now with the decisions that must be made at the national level, the state level, and at the local levels. We pray for wisdom for those who are overseeing health care decisions and advisories. We pray for those who are leading in businesses and schools and in all of the different places that are opening up. And we pray that uh, you would drive out this, this virus and that you would also speed up the process through which a vaccine and other solutions may be reached. During this time, though, help us not to shrink back in the way that we follow you, in the way that we care for each other. Make us wise as serpents and innocent as doves, those who would take advantage of every opportunity and uh, use the wisest practices, but give us hearts that would harm no one. Thank you for what we're going to learn here this morning, and we pray that as we study your Gospels that these words would become ingrained in our hearts and that they would guide us, that they wouldn't be just words that we hear or learn a little bit about on Sundays, but they would become the driving force that continues to move us forward into this world in a time when everybody else may shrink back or be bound by fear. We pray for our congregation around the South Shore and all those who are listening in, even from other states. And we pray that you would unite our hearts around a central mission and that even though we are isolated from many of the normal practices that we've become used to, that you would nonetheless bind us together as one church with a heart for hearing Jesus and for following. And now, Lord, we pray in the way that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father... Well, good morning. It's good to see those of you who are here, and I welcome those of you who are uh, tuning in online as well, both this morning and throughout the week. We are glad that uh, you are here. We've been thinking about today as a staff and preparing for today. Last Sunday, we launched a new series that we're calling The Trouble with Jesus. Now, we, we don't think that Jesus is trouble when we've come to put our faith in Him, but sometimes people in our society want to incorporate Jesus but find that they stop short because for them, there is trouble when they consider some of the words of Jesus because they're not quite ready to receive Jesus as He is. This concept of the trouble with Jesus has been percolating in the back of my mind since about 2004 when Dr. Joe Stoll, who was then the president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, came to Boston for Vision New England's annual congress and I was assigned to be Dr. Stoll's host for the day as one of the members of the planning team for that event. Dr. Stoll's talks emanated from a book that he had written the year before by the title, The Trouble with Jesus. And his observations were largely shaped in the months after 9-11, where the initial response saw people instantly filling churches all around the country in search of hope. But then within a few weeks, there was a new kind of tolerance that emerged where Christian voices were only welcome if they embraced the principle that all truth claims are equal. And therefore, praying in the name of Jesus or presenting a gospel claim that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life are, became acts that violate this first principle of the new tolerance. That's what we looked at last Sunday, and so if that seems like it's leaving you behind, go ahead online and and look at last Sunday's message, and, and you'll be caught up. Dr. Stoll's talks and our conversations that day around those talks, again, have been making me think for some time about this concept of the trouble with Jesus. So let me state again that the main concept right up front as we begin today is that the trouble with Jesus is that he doesn't neatly fit into the boxes that we as a society try to create for him, thinking that we can understand all of who Jesus is. And so it becomes essential that we constantly do our best to understand Jesus as the Bible presents him and as we wrestle with the ways that modern historians and church movements or even political causes or popular culture can try to shape and package Jesus to fit their agendas. This morning, our topic is Terms of Engagement. And the question that I have is, how do you and I engage a fast-changing culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ when, in some ways, that culture moves away from the very things that Jesus taught? So, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. We're studying something that's very important as we try to think through and navigate the times that we live in and throughout this, this COVID shutdown period, I've become more and more convinced that we need greater and greater clarity about Jesus and about the hope and confidence that come from fully understanding Jesus as his closest followers and disciples portrayed him. Last week, we looked at the trouble with only way Jesus. Today, we're going to look at part two in this series Terms of Engagement. Here's the first point in terms of engagement, or in understanding these terms of engagement. Jesus saw this day coming. You may not have realized that, but he saw the kinds of shifts that go on in popular culture. And so he says these words in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, just before the, the, the verses that I read a few moments ago. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These words come from the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount that is popularly called or known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are ten verses that present a series of outrageous attitudes that mark people who follow Jesus and who embrace the kingdom of heaven in their lives. The Beatitudes are a study of contrasts where Jesus' followers are called to a way of living that runs contrary to the assumptions that most people make about successful living in our world today. We're going to focus for a moment just on verses 11 and 12, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I know those are the words that made you sign up for being a Christian in the first place, right? Because you knew that you'd be insulted and persecuted, and people would say lousy things about you. Not quite. And so these words come to us to a a, a little bit of a shock because they are meant to be arresting and attention getting. Jesus understood that he was bringing the good news of God's redemptive grace into a world that was filled with many people who would have hostile reactions to his message. So think about this. The gospel is good news about God's love and redemption. So why does the message of Jesus often draw hostile reactions? One reason is that embracing the Beatitudes requires us to adopt a radical identification with Jesus. Part of this is seen in adopting a new mindset. You and I are considered blessed by God when people insult you, persecute you, or say evil things about you because of Jesus. The key phrase there is where Jesus says, because of me. The goal is never for Christians to be jerks who cause hateful reactions in everything that we do. The goal is to live by and be known for outrageous kingdom attitudes in the midst of an increasingly pagan society. I'll explain that term in a minute. I use that word deliberately. Embracing the Beatitudes requires us to view ourselves as servants of God's kingdom, I was doing a word count as I read through the Sermon on the Mount several times this week, and I found that kingdom of heaven appears seven times, and then the word heaven or some concept of heaven three more times in the Sermon on the Mount. The phrase your father in heaven, or just the father, appears 12 times in the Sermon on the Mount. This makes it very clear to me that the Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom manifesto. It is designed for people who are more part of God's kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. That is part of our calling. That is part of our identity that we discover the closer and closer we get to Jesus. So, this opening point that I wanted you to be encouraged by is the knowledge that Jesus understood that difficult days were coming. Here's the second thought that I want you to embrace. The gospel of Jesus was designed to penetrate a pagan culture. So Jesus starts off this section by saying, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Listen as Dr. Joe Stoll explains what we mean by this concept of paganism. This is a direct quote from his book, The Trouble with Jesus. Paganism describes a society that embraces wide-open spirituality with a multiplicity of gods and no central moral authority. The only rule that paganism jealously guards is that there is no one God who has final and exclusive rights as the only true God. Paganism allows your God as a preference but never as the singularly preeminent God. Last week, we saw how Dr. Stoll was encouraged by the turn toward God after 9-11, and then he made another observation about an event that happened at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. President Bush had called the nation to prayer. Stoll noted that previously cynical members of the press embraced the event like eager altar boys, and the Beltway politicians lined the front rows like deacons and elders in the church. The president then made a few remarks, and Billy Graham was invited to preach, and the rest of the program was filled with leaders from Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, and other faiths. And then, in that service, the classic hymn from Martin Luther was sung, "'A Mighty Fortress is Our God.'" Stoll said, as he listened to this on television, he was basking in the glow, thinking, what a wonderful thing, people all around the country are singing these phenomenal words, "'A Mighty Fortress is Our God.'" And then a friend who was watching with him said, Did you notice what just happened? They left out the second verse. All right, you're sitting there thinking, either here or at home, what's the second verse of a mighty fortress of our God? I might know the first verse, but what's the second verse? This is how it sounds. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Does that? Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Now think about this for a minute. If you go to a church where hymns are still sung, verses of hymns are left out or skipped all the time. It's often not that big of a deal. Usually it's for the sake of time. Dr. Stoll's point here, though, was this time it seemed deliberate. And it truncated the message of that phenomenal hymn that Martin Luther wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Instead, this became a subtle, subtle example of a new paganism that is cleverly packaged, yet, in some ways, much like the old paganism of Jesus' day. Jesus among the gods is okay, but acknowledging that Jesus is the right man of God's own choosing was too much for that day, too much for the nation to be led in a hymn that made that declaration. Celebrating Jesus as God's chosen instrument would illustrate our, tr- our culture's trouble with Jesus. He's welcome as long as he fits in with all of the other gods in however we want to worship them, but not as the one-of-a-kind Savior. Luther was saying that we would be confiding in our own strength if we were not depending on the one that God had chosen, the one who must win the great cosmic battle of redemption in the end. And that is nobody else but Jesus. Into the midst of this culture come words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. In the old world, salt had a preserving effect. Without refrigeration, an absence of salt caused meat and food to decay quickly. Jesus was saying that people who belong to his kingdom are aware of cultural shifts, of spiritual drifts, and they lift the culture by pointing to the one-of-a-kind Savior whom God the Father has sent to redeem people from a world that so easily drifts away from his purposes and his design. So let me introduce the big idea for this message. Jesus calls us to be salt and light as terms of engagement with a culture that continually drifts from God's design. And here's the third thought. The first is that Jesus saw this day coming. The second is that the gospel of Jesus was designed to penetrate a pagan culture. And now we add a third thought to this. Jesus equips us to impact the culture even when it drifts. So he goes on here in this segment of the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world, he says in the opening part of verse 13, and then he closes off this thought saying, in the same way, let your light shine among others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We already saw that Christians are to function as salt with this preserving effect. And now comes this concept of light. Light always functions according to its natural properties. Light has a number of functions for us. It naturally dispels darkness. Light illuminates the light, the, the way forward, and light leads us home. I often think of these natural functions of light when I'm walking my dog at night. Our, our little dachshund, Copper, is very small and very low to the ground. And so I'll, I'll often take a flashlight when I walk with him at night, And that little flashlight dispels the darkness so we can see a little bit. It illuminates the way forward so that we can see any tree branch that we might trip over or anything else that's an obstacle. And then it leads us home. And always as we make that turn toward home, copper wants to run as fast as he can and pull me on the leash because he knows the way home and the light begins to draw him that way. And light functions that way for us too. It always dispels darkness. It always illuminates the dangers on the way forward and it leads us home to Jesus. Jesus specifically calls us to a lifetime of doing good that calls praise to God the Father. This was the strategy of the earliest eras of Christian people. They operated as a minority viewpoint in a phenomenally pagan world. Here's just one example of that pagan world in the first century. The mayor of the city of Ephesus was required to sacrifice to a different god every day of the year. In Roman culture, boys were desired by families and girls were considered a burden. So baby girls were often left to die on the garbage dumps. The dominant pagan belief of that time was in a generic god who could be honored by worshiping any of the idols or any of the pluralities, pluralities of deities in the Roman or Greek systems. They were considered to be polytheistic. That simply means many gods rule. In this kind of religious climate, Christians were considered a threat because they insisted on worshiping Jesus only and not the generic God of the culture. Now, we need to realize something. Jesus knew all of this as he was offering those words in the Sermon on the Mount, he understood that's where the society was headed. And he didn't call us to take up swords in order to change that. He called us to a new way of living, to be salt and light, and to bring praise to God the Father by the way that we live and by the way that we serve others. So what was the strategy that led to the phenomenal growth of the Christian church in those first centuries? Rodney Stark is a sociologist who wrote about this in his book called The Rise of Christianity. He wasn't so much writing from a theological standpoint, but from a sociological standpoint and trying to understand how did a small, marginalized, often abused group of people start so, so smally in, in one city in Jerusalem and then within three centuries become the dominant faith in the known world. How does something like that happen? That was what he was after in his study. And this is what he wrote. They cared for the sick when the plagues hit and when the elite fled. They cared for each other and they fed their neighbors when times were tough. They treated women with greater dignity than the Roman culture showed at that time. They upheld the dignity of marriage and family in contrast to sexual wantonness, where in that time in the first century in the Roman culture, Men often had their wives to raise the family, but they found their sexual fulfillment with somebody else outside. And they went to the garbage dumps and they adopted the little girls who were left there to die and they brought them into their own families. And one encounter at a time, their neighbors began to see that this was a better way of life. And because the persecuted church functioned as salt and light, It became attractive to the culture around them who could see the differences between the pagan culture and the way that these Christians were living no matter what the world threw at them. And the church began to multiply decade by decade by decade. The culture was not won over by preaching alone or by door-to-door evangelism strategies. The culture was won over by encounters with neighbors who cared and who functioned as salt and light in a rapidly decaying culture. And if you know anything about the history of of the Roman Empire, you know that the Roman Empire ultimately imploded because of its culture, because of the sickness that was inside. And Christianity emerged because the church saw salt and light as terms of engagement with their culture. They became bridge builders rather than bomb throwers. The entire Sermon on the Mount provides these kinds of terms. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Go the extra mile. Take the shirt off your back and give them your cloak too. All of these are statements that have worked their way into our English language and culture that come directly from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he was calling Christ followers to live a completely different kind of life. These are all terms of engagement for kingdom impact. All right, where do you see this happen? Dr. Stoll wrote about one person that he saw in the aftermath of nine Person who embodied this better than anybody else that he had witnessed. And he even contrasted this with the way that some of the well-known preachers of that day had uh, gone on the talk shows and talked about what needed to happen. And he, he noticed how they struggled when they were put side by side with people of other religions, trying to advocate for why Jesus was the best way forward. And then one person emerged out of this, an unlikely person who never would have chosen this particular spotlight that was sh- shined on her. Her name was Lisa Beamer. Her, cousin, her husband, Todd Beamer, was one of the men who died in Flight 93, the one that crashed in Pennsylvania after they had discovered that the other planes had hit the towers in the Pentagon and they realized the folks who had hijacked their plane were going to do something dastardly with it as well. Todd was the one who was heard talking to a telephone operator on the, the phone that's on the back of the, uh, the seat on the plane as he was trying to get information and trying to talk to this operator so that she could get word back to his wife and his children. And then he asked her to say the Lord's Prayer with him, which she recited, and he put down the phone, and the last words that she heard were Todd speaking to other people around him, saying, are you ready? Let's roll. And then whatever took place in their fight back against a world of evil took place in that moment, And, and the plane crashed in, in a field in Pennsylvania. Shortly afterward, Lisa was interviewed on Larry King Live. Her story immediately caught the attention of the nation because here was this young widow, this young wife with two children and a third on the way who had just lost her husband to these terrorists. And when asked how she was handling all of this, she quietly quietly gave praise to Jesus as her strength in the midst of the storm this is being salt and light in the midst of difficult times. And this is exactly what God calls us to do, what Jesus calls us to do in every age. Jesus calls us to be salt and light as terms of engagement with a culture that continually drifts from God's design and even reacts with hostility towards the central part of Jesus' message, that he alone has come as the Son of God, as God's solution to our sin and rebellion problem. And the world is only made right when one person at a time, our hearts and our minds become aligned with the very God who created us and with the Jesus who redeemed us. I want to encourage you with these thoughts. Our culture is changing. Watch and be aware. It's not the first time this has happened and it was going on in the day that Jesus arrived to see for himself Christian views that used to seem normal will seem extreme the more that our culture shifts. I don't care today if you are a Democrat or a Republican. I happen to be neither. But here is one common example. Look at the way in the press that Amy Connie Barrett is talked about because of her faith. She happens to be a conservative Catholic just three years ago when she was being confirmed for the role that she holds now, one of our senators, not from this state, but from another state, actually said these words that have been publicly repeated over and over, the dogma speaks loudly within you, as if to say if you're a Christian and if the words of the gospel flow from you, you're not qualified to serve. Folks, those are the kinds of clues that we get when the culture is shifting away as if to say a Christian's viewpoint is not welcome in the marketplace along with everybody else's viewpoint. I'm not saying that the world should listen to Christians only, but the days get more difficult, and the more difficult days call for a different strategy, and part of that strategy is the outrageous kind of love and salt and light examples that Jesus was calling for here in the opening sections of the Sermon on the Mount. There may be times when people tell you you're too Christian or you're too Catholic or you're too Jesus oriented or you're too biblically oriented to fit what's going on in the world. You and I should not be surprised when that happens. Jesus told us these kinds of things would happen. It's exactly what the earliest Christians faced. That Christian views that once seemed as mainstream become too extreme. And none of this surprises Jesus, so none of this should surprise us. But when this happens, opportunity abounds. This is the time for us not to shrink back and to become one with the culture in such a way that we don't stand out at all It's the time for us to renew our commitment to function as salt and light, allowing our good deeds to lead others to God and to Jesus as they realize that the way that he has given us is a better way than the rest of the world knows. Some efforts like this might be organized by the church, like our big event that we had a few weeks ago where people went out serving all over the South Shore. Many of them will present themselves to us as we go about our individual lives day in and day out. So, if you are a Christ follower, I want you to think of this. You are a missionary who is sent by Jesus directly into our culture to function as salt and light and to stand out by the gracious way that we live and by how we, by how we draw praise to the name of the Father through our kindness through our goodness as he transforms us from the inside out. Pray with me if you're willing to, if you're drawn to this thought, this prayer of renewal. Lord Jesus, renew my faith and my boldness. Help me to live as salt and light so that our world will know that Jesus still changes lives. Restore my vision when I lose sight. And restore my courage when I lose heart. Let me pray for you now. God, our Father, thank you for these friends who've gathered here in the room and for those who are with us virtually. And we pray that you will give us all the ability to hear this call of Jesus who through every year, every decade, and every century calls his followers to discover ways to function as salt and light, creating a preserving effect on the world and creating a way for others to see the spotlight that is shining on Jesus. Allow us to serve with open hearts. Allow us to be filled with grace and love that come from you from on high, so powerfully, so fully that it overflows to our neighbors, to our family members, to our co-workers, and wherever we go. Thank you for giving us a strategy that overturns even great cultural shifts like the Roman Empire. And we pray that your influence will continue to spread and that people will see the preeminent beauty of Jesus in the way of life that he has given us. We pray for nothing short of a revolution of grace and salt and light in our time. And we ask for this in the power and in the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. We're going to uh, join together for one more song of, of praise toward our God Hope to see you again next week.